Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. In today's episode, we're going to talk with Kylene Austin about the restorative power of paddling that she experienced through a trip along the Inside Passage. We've talked about the Inside Passage previously, but I think you'll find this one different and you'll take away a different perspective. Enjoy today's episode with Kylene Austin. Hi, Kylene. Thanks for joining Paddling the Blue today. Hi, John. Welcome. So, Kylene, tell us a little bit about you. Well, I own Columbia River Kayaking along with a couple of other folks in Skamakaway, Washington. I took up sea kayaking about 10 years ago after early history of whitewater rafting and whitewater kayaking a little bit. So it marries well to uh, be able to paddle and share the experience with other people. I live in Kayakum County, Washington, southwestern Washington, on an island in the middle of the Columbia River, which is where I paddle most of the time. And I'm a professional singer-songwriter, and I think that's enough about me. Wow, well, that's <laughs> multifaceted, that's for sure. So on an island, that's pretty cool, living on an island. Except when the island is um, basically below sea level. We're like a little... Netherlands here in that there's a dike around the outside of the island because most of the the land inland is technically swamp. Oh. <laughs> so I've been spending the last month or so amending the soil on my property in large amounts to uh, try to keep the atmospheric rivers that come through here every winter now from flooding my property. So how big is the island? Uh, it is about 10 miles across and about a, um, two miles tall. Um, if one were to run around it, which I have, it's about 24 miles. So to give our, our listeners some scale, this is a 24-mile perimeter island on a river. Mm-hmm. On the Columbia yeah, River. So that, that gives some scale for just how large the Columbia River actually is. Yes, yes. There are two main channels. Um, to the north is Washington. To the south is Oregon. There's a ferry that goes from the island to Oregon and a bridge that goes over to Washington. So how long have you been a kayaker? Well, I've been a water sports enthusiast basically since day one. I mean, I... I've never been afraid of the water. So even as a baby, I would just crawl over to the swimming pool and just jump in or crawl in. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a total water baby. But um, when I was probably preteen, just preteen, I, I started river rafting, whitewater rafting. And then probably about 15 years ago, I, I dabbled in whitewater kayaking on the South Fork American River in California. Then I came to Washington, southwestern Washington State, and I met the folks who at that time had uh, Columbia River kayaking, and they actually asked me to join the crew doing marketing and promotion, which I have a background in, in business doing, and made me swear to never become a kayak guide, because once you do, you, you don't have time to do marketing and promotion. <laughs> So I uh, so I, I swore my oath, but 
the nicest thing was I had access to really the basically the best coaches in the in the some of, some of the best coaches in the world, the best gear, equipment, and a playground that is a great training ground for just about everywhere else in the world. You have ocean conditions, but you also get protected areas, and so you can you can really learn well here. I started sea kayaking in earnest ten years ago. And what was it that that drove you to sea kayaking? This place is, I think, best suited. The Columbia River, Lower Columbia River, anyway, is really best suited for sea kayaking. That's really the what it's designed for. It's tidal, so it goes up and down twice a day, every day, and it has some some pretty ripping currents. And so, taking a, a recreational kayak out on it um, may not be the best choice. There are hazards galore. There's a major shipping channel. There are all sorts of old pilings from old structures when this was a booming uh, fishery area. And so um, the best way to see it, the best, and I love wildlife. I love nature. If, If I had to pick one passion above all, it would be nature. And within that, it would be wildlife. And the best way to see wildlife and experience wildlife and interact with wildlife in this place is at River Otter level. All right. Now, how far are you from the coast? About 40 miles up from, from the Columbia Bar. So we're here today to talk a little bit about your solo paddle of the Inside Passage. So tell us a little bit about that trip. Well, I, um, as, a, as a kid, I, I kind of grew up in a chaotic environment, and so my mental escape was to picture myself traveling, exploring solo, <laughs> the world, the entire world. Usually that was, I was picturing that as me walking and hiking or building an igloo or, <laughs> but on land. And then about seven years ago, I was actually given the inspiration by Jenny Callahan, my friend Jenny Callahan, to consider doing that by water. And I had a dream seven years ago, which I shared with Jenny, where I was paddling in this place I'd never been before with these steep, evergreen-covered hills on both sides and this aquamarine water and um, that was fairly textured. And when I woke up, somehow I just identified it as the Inside Passage. And when I shared that with Jenny, she, she gave me the idea. She said, well... I think you should do this. <laughs> and so the the dream of, of traveling solo switched to paddling some part of the Inside Passage. And so I did lots of reading and research and talked with a lot of people who've done it, um, both solo and in groups, and decided the best way for me to start would be to paddle from Southeast Alaska to home, to here, to my island. And so it took basically four years to plan, to get what I needed physically, emotionally, gear-wise, safety-wise. And in 2018, I actually did a a shakedown. I did a nine-day paddle, testing out, rolling my kayak onto a ferry to get up to catch a can, and then paddled south for a few days and turned around and came back. Learned what I needed and what I didn't need. And then in 2019, June 1st, 
I took the ferry then this time. It was a one-way ferry trip. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the way back was via the water. And I took three months total t- to get home. And I didn't have a hard rule about having to paddle every single mile. I was It was there for the experience and the journey and whatever happened, happened. And uh, I do love riding on ferries. And so I wasn't above catching a ride from time to time. But the majority of it was spent uh, spent kayaking. All right. So your four-year prep period, what kinds of things did you do during that four-year prep period to get yourself ready? First was a lot of reading, reading um, different uh, biographies and accounts. Um, Betty Lohman probably was my favorite one, <laughs> Bijaboji. I did a lot of reading just to kind of get a feel for, especially for solo solo passage. Um, I also, I trained. I also got to where a 40-mile day paddle was actually quite easy. I also researched uh, different kinds of, of safety gear and whatnot. And redundancy, and I take people out here I have redundancy as a guide or a coach in terms of safety gear. I have a a cell phone and a VHF. I have sometimes automatic things and and, uh, non-automatic things that do the same thing just in case the automatic thing breaks. I prepped that. I also researched food. There's so much on food and how to pack and how to, to, to make it compact and fit into hatches and dehydration or freeze drying and all of that. I researched that and, and also just experimented with what I liked and didn't like in, in terms of the freeze dried food. Cause that stuff gets old fast yeah. and expensive. <laughs> it gets really expensive. <laughs> uh, well, some people like make all of their own and I did dehydrate some of my, my, like sausage. Some of my roots are from the South here in the U.S. And one of my favorite breakfasts is biscuits and gravy. And that ended up being my go-to breakfast because I usually ended up doing two meals a day on the trip and with like a snack on the water midday. And I brought my small cast iron skillet with me (laughs) that fit into the hatch. I had the uh, biscuit mixed with the different, you know, the salt and the baking powder all already mixed into it so that all I had to do was mix it up and then cook it in the, in the pan and then hydrate the sausage and hydrate the milk and (laughs) make the gravy and the dehydrated eggs, which I didn't really, after a while I stopped using those, but the, um, the biscuits and gravy, it filled me up and it gave me the energy to go all day until, until dinner time. So I did. I played around with different kinds of meals and and what I liked there. I had a lot of great help in that research um, and a lot of it too. I, people, when once they found out this was what I was doing, they went from uh, it was the gamut. It was you're going to do this alone? What are you kidding me? I could never do this, not even alone or not even with people. <laughs> <laughs> but they often would want to be involved in some way because they could kind of experience it vicariously. So I had, I had um, great uh, ground help and encouragement and whatnot in looking at different things and, and suggestions for, like, the big one for me was that I, I wanted to blog while I did this. One of the, the, two of my goals for this were to write every day, 
and take more photographs. I've been a mental picture person my whole life. And when I need photographs, that, that makes it kind of tough to share them with other people. So my goal was to take as many photographs as I could and, and get to be a better picture taker as well as writer. And so with that, I needed a way of actually being able to share that with others during the trip. And because um, I, I did have a lot of people who had fear for me doing this alone. In order to put their minds at ease, I, I thought it would be great to combine that blogging with a, a regular contact so that they could, oh, there's the blog for the day. There's the it's all about the water entry. Okay, she's still alive <laughs> kind of thing. So how were you able to keep that connection going? I actually purchased one of those satellite internet uh, hotspot things that was ridiculously expensive. And that's not even counting the, the actual plan was, was ridiculously expensive. It was satellite-based, and I can never get the thing to really work. But what happened is it, I actually ended up having a cell signal a great deal of the time. And so I could use that as a hotspot. I had a, a tablet that was rugged and in a rugged case that was able to, and of course, then it was also in a dry bag, <laughs> its own dry bag. And I could pull that out every night and I could write and I could upload my photos from my camera. And then I don't think I ever went more than like four days without finding a signal and being able to upload those blogs. That's interesting. I would not have expected that along that 1,100-mile trip to have had that much cell access. Yeah, I, it was unexpected for me as well. And it, when I do it again, <laughs> I um, will be able to, to keep that in mind and not... Because that was some of the worry. First, there's the, the worry of, okay. But I, I also had an Ebra, I had a, a SOS on my VHF. Uh, there's the SOS on the cell phone that tracks into GPS. Um, so I had redundancy there in terms of, and, you know, and I had my VHF radio where I could actually call the Coast Guard or the Mounties in the case of BC. So you mentioned the nine-day shakedown as well. So what was your tripping experience prior to this journey? The longest trip that I had done was like an eight-day trip down in Baja. Okay. It was seven days of paddling and camping. And I actually got a lot from that because that's where I learned, okay, where this kind of camp stove works, this kind of tent works because these will fit into a boat. Now that was with a group. And it, um, when you're with a group, you can share in the load of, you know, there are a lot of things that can just be used for everybody. And so everybody can kind of fit everything. So if you're going on your own though, you got to have it all. It's different kind of packing. Yeah, you're relying solely on yourself. You mentioned that nine-day shakedown. So that nine-day shakedown was a little different than your, your Baja journey, I'm guessing, because you kind of started to experience some of the things, same things you would along the trip, like the ferry and such. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah, the Baja trip, well, first of all, it was a lot colder. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not in Baja. No, in, on the, on the nine-day <laughs> shakedown, it was a lot colder than Baja. <laughs> Uh, but I was prepared for that. But I did actually, and and from June, my trip is from June first to uh, to September first, and because that's when you have that good quote unquote good weather window. So I thought I had prepared for 
rain, enough rain. Because, I mean, I live where there's a lot of rain. I realized that I needed to get stuff that was a lot more waterproof. That was different. That was the, a big difference is dealing with that kind of weather. Even though I do that on a regular basis back home with my company, just for myself, it, I mean, that's the other thing is that you're totally self-sufficient. You've got to be everything. It's all up to you. I learned that I'm actually, I learned two things, um, both from the shakedown and the actual trip is that A, I am capable of making really good split moment decisions and B, that I'm actually really good at title planning and navigation. <laughs> That's a great feeling. Yeah. Before the, before the trip, I, I second guessed myself on a regular basis. I had a, a developed a, a habit of second guessing myself and not being fully confident about my initial uh, gut instinct. And one of the things that this trip helped me to learn about myself is that that gut instinct is is spot on. So part of that instinct was your, your choice of route and you did the route from north to south. Why'd you choose that direction? A couple of reasons. The first is that uh, <laughs> I had people tell me, well, the prevailing winds and the tides run from south to north or southwest to northeast. And then I had the same level of people with the same amount of knowledge, others, I should say, with the same, with the same amount of knowledge, say, well, the prevailing winds and tides run from northwest to south, northeast to southwest. And I read this, too, and I'm just thinking, okay, these are all experts. They're all scientists or science-based. So what's, what's the difference? And I couldn't determine what that was until after I had actually taken the trip when somebody said, oh, it depends on if it's an El Nino versus a La Nina year. Well, okay. Um, I didn't research it further from that point. But I decided that Jennifer Hahn, who um, has done some solo kayaking and, and written about it, and I read her stuff extensively, she went from north to south. That influenced me as well as as because she did a lot of the areas I, I knew I was going to be doing and then the second reason was that it seemed it would be easier psychologically for me to be paddling home than to be paddling away from home one other factor too is that the storms start in Alaska on on September 1st so had I paddled from south to north and say got delayed hung up was having a good time and on Vancouver Island and I didn't make it up to Prince Rupert until September 1st could be an, could have been a challenge waiting for or trying to cross during the winter storms whereas coming from north to south September is one of the most beautiful months here um, in this area it's calm the winds of the summer winds have died down from the temperature differential between up in the valley up the river corridor and the seas are milder typically on the Washington coast and so if I did get delayed which I ended up not being able to get delayed <laughs> I would have been able to still paddle in September this far south so how did you find making the jump from nine miles, or sorry, nine days to 90 days and 1,100 miles? Um, what, what surprised you in making that jump? Oh, what surprised me? There is something to having an end goal. Paddling the nine days, I knew I'd have to come back in five days. And 
probably the biggest one, and this did surprise me, was emotionally it was it was fairly easy. It was like I still wanted to – one thing I wanted to do when I turned around at day five on the shakedown was I wanted to keep going. Knowing that I wanted to keep going let me feel confident that, okay, I was going to be able to do this because I want to. <laughs> if I'd have been able to, I probably would have. <laughs> So, um, and that that did surprise me. And so, and actually doing it where I don't have to turn around, then it's like, okay, good. I get to keep going and I get to keep exploring this new place. With the nine days, it was short enough that my head was kind of spinning in that, okay, I'm done. I'm headed back, getting back into my normal work routine. The 90 day trip though, as I hit like the halfway point and when it, when I hit mid July and I hit more civilized land, I was no longer in the place where I could just pull off on any beach that had the right area to be able to camp above the high tide line. So I had to start thinking about getting permission from wherever I was going to land to be able to land there and camp there. I wasn't in the wild anymore. And what surprised me about that is how I mourned the wildness that my, my favorite part of this journey was basically between Prince Rupert and Vancouver Island, because it was just me and the whales and the doll porpoises and <laughs> the harbor seals and the, and the, and the sea otters and the birds. <laughs> um, and, and once I hit Vancouver Island, I was no longer in the wild. It never, it didn't feel as much like I was in the wild. How did you find the campsites? Would you just decide this is where I'm going to land or were, were there permissions needed in many places? Um, well, for the, for the wild part, it was reading the shoreline and the research that I'd done. There are several people who like map GPS coordinates on good kayaking beaches, which of course I didn't really tune into until I got to Vancouver Island and south of there because because that was when it was actually more necessary because there were so few ones that you could just pull up to and camp at without permissions permits paying all of that ahead of time in the wild though it was I really I got good at saying okay that looks like it's got some solid land above the high tide line because a lot of them have a bunch of little tiny rivulet tributary type water fresh water brown fresh water or tan more tan colored that run out off of the the land into the into the sea so it looks like it's green like there's grass there but once you get up to it it's really really wet and you don't want to pitch a tent on it and then, you know, finding something that's level, finding something that is on the nine day uh, shakedown. The last night I had gotten some bad news that um, someone very close to me had, had died. And so I was more in my head about that loss and grieving that loss than I was paying attention to where I was going to land in camp. And it started to get dark. And I was like, okay, this is this little inlet on Annette Island, North Annette Island. Little did I know I was actually super close to the village that's on Annette Island. But it's up up in this little like inlet that's 
uh, there's a quarry and whatnot. And I guess the ferry landing's actually in that inlet too, but it wasn't running that night. And so I never saw it. But anyway, so I get into the, the point of this thing and it's like, there's one spot and it was that night, it was like a 15 foot high tide and it was a pretty shallow beach. And so I thought, oh, okay, this could come up. So I actually stayed awake until it was 10 minutes before high tide and the water came to about a foot from where my tent, where I, the, the one place I could put my tent. And I actually had my kayak up on like the rock, halfway on the rock and tied to a tree limb. But that was the only time. So on the 90 day, I never had a beach that, that didn't work out. And some of them worked out better. Some of them I could get into the interior and there was like two feet of really spongy, sweet moss that you can, it's like sleeping on a down mattress and (laughs) (laughs) don't even need a tent or sleep if it weren't for for the bugs. And so I, I really was fortunate in being able to spot beaches that were good. And I did use some of the ones that I had in, uh, used in 2019 as well. So how did you resupply along the trip? How did I resupply? So before I left, before I drove up to Bellingham Ferry, the Alaska Ferry Terminal in Bellingham, I prepared three boxes of um, dehydrated and foodstuffs. And I met some of my friends who lived in Bellingham. We had lunch and I gave them the three boxes. And they drove over once... Once I got close to like Prince Rupert was the first drop spot. And once I got within a couple of days of Prince Rupert, I was able to to send a message to them saying, okay, I'll be there in a couple of days. They grabbed the box, drove over the border and mailed it from inside Canada. So it got there in a day or two. If they'd have mailed it from Bellingham, it could have taken up to two weeks to get there. And that's how I did it. And so there were the three drop spots. The third spot, the third drop spot, though, I was able, my uncle was able to, who lives on the same property with me, was able to come up. It, that was at Port Hardy and meet me and bring me my drop box. <laughs> and there were little stores along the way, too, where I was able to get fresh foods. So what would you do different when you do it again? I will be more present and I'll be happier. One of the biggest changes for me didn't happen actually during the trip itself. It happened after the trip. As I got, as I mentioned earlier, as I got closer and closer to home and to civilization and to regular life, I got sad. And I'd already struggled with depression and mental illness for quite a while. So I chalked it up to that. I thought it was just that. I didn't know until after I got done with the trip that that is a something that can happen with people who undertake major expeditions that the the come down as it were is really really hard and people just want to sit and like dream <laughs> whereas i didn't want to sit and dream i was miserable i was at the lowest point i've ever been in my entire life but hitting that low point basically i think it's like with uh alcoholics anonymous they say when you hit rock bottom and that certainly for me was in terms of my mental health. And so I took the same kind of charge that I took with planning for and doing this expedition. I took that same energy and focused it on wellness. 
and have come a long way. <laughs> I want to see how it is to do another trip and do it from this connected place that I'm in now. Well, congratulations on, uh, on working through that. That's a, a tough thing, tough thing to come through. Yeah. Um, soloing the route isn't, honestly, isn't all that unique. People do it all the time. But you had some reasons for the trip that made this one different. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I, I wanted to do the trip solo because I did have those demons. I did have those my main goal for this was to figure out how to heal and doing it with other people at that point, I didn't have the ability to connect with other people in a way that I think would have helped me to, to do that healing. And so this wasn't a trip for me to demonstrate my sea kayaking prowess and push myself to the limits of physical sea kayaking it was to it was more below the surface exploration that drove me doing this than it 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 was what was happening above the water in the in the kayak itself and it was what was inside me there under the surface of me <laughs> i felt the only way that i could do that was really for it to just be me to not have people to have anybody else that I'm responsible for but me and not have any distractions from others. And because I had, I had spent my life before this, basically the easiest way for me is if I can take care of everybody else, then it's good. <laughs> and, and oh, by the way, now I need to take care of me. And then everybody gets mad because I'm not taking care of them anymore. And I know I caused it. And so this was a way of, of figuring out, okay, how am I going to take care of me? The kayaking part of it was just simply a natural way for me to do that um, since I was already in that element. So how did the trip help you focus on you? Well, when something broke, I was the only one who could fix it. I had a kayak rolling cart that I used when I was like getting on and off ferries or whatever. It didn't work at all on the barnacle rock beaches that I took out, took out at and launched from, but uh, it didn't fit into the hatch. Uh, so it rode on top and, you know, you had attached the wheels with a cotter pin kind of thing and, uh, or a circle pin, I guess it is. And I lost one. <laughs> so I had to, basically MacGyver a <laughs> replacement <laughs> pin that would go into it, which I still have. And it was just basically a piece of rudder cable that I wrapped some duct tape around to make a, a pin that I could kind of bend and so it would stay in place. But it, it worked the rest of the trip. So it's relying on yourself. I mean, you mentioned earlier that um, one of the things that you learned was you were pretty darn good at title planning and pretty good uh, at, at making those snap decisions. And I suppose coming to those realizations on the trip, it was really a self-satisfying. Yes. I was raised as the, the youngest in my family. And so usually things were done, you know, the baby always gets things done for them, right? Because everybody's older and they already know how it goes and they're just, they're going to do it. And so I think that was part of what led to me not being as confident as I am now. And, and so, yes, the, okay, I have to make a, 
immediate decision here about which way I'm going to go when both the GPS and the chart don't show this piece <laughs> that I'm trying to get through and how to get through it. Um, and I'm going to have to, I, I'm going to have to figure this out. And then, oh, I figured this out. Oh, that was really smart that I thought, oh, let's look over here. <laughs> and having that be just me. So the whole experience is, is you know, I actually provide my own feedback and my own maybe pat on the back, as it were, which helped me to to really develop that relationship with myself where I had the confidence. What would you say to other listeners um, who are listening to this episode who maybe have the skills and abilities, but maybe lack the confidence in their own skills and abilities to do something, you know, something grand like the trip you've done? I would say that even if you question whether you can do it or are afraid to do it, it really it's fear that keeps you from it. Fear of failure, fear of not being enough. And when you do actually have the chops, <laughs> have the skills, have what you need with everything except for the confidence that doing this can create it. And even if you don't pull off something or, or as undergo something quite so grand, do the nine day shakedown. Start with that. I think if I hadn't done the shakedown, I wouldn't have done as well on the nine month. I mean, on the, on the 90 day. So that was a huge confidence builder for you. It was more of a comfort. It was more of a, okay, now I know basically what to expect in terms of conditions, in terms of what's physically needed to haul 250 pounds of gear and boat, I'm sorry, 300 pounds of gear and boat up a quarter mile beach, carrying every single one because you can't drag anything on those rocks. And then um, setting up a camp, cooking the food that's far away from where your tent is and all the bear safety and everything else still enjoying and doing some exploring before you got to go to sleep and before you get up in the next morning and do it all again, where you make the breakfast and you haul the 250, 300 pounds of gear and boat and everything else down to the water line, get it all loaded before your tide is not good for you to get in and launch <laughs> and paddle 25 miles or 30 miles or 10 miles. And then that's that's physically really really demanding and that kind of thing it's more of a okay the, the, it is a confidence builder and so so yes yeah, start with something you know have the grand plan definitely have it see the grand plan and and dream big it's times now the time is now <laughs> dream big and then do a test run and depending on how that goes, then you'll learn what you need and what you don't need to do the grand plan. Then you can train. I mean, <laughs> the stories it was that after the shakedown, I went down and did surf camp with Ginny and Bonnie down in Baja. And because I thought I could use some more surf because I was terrified of the surf. I knew how to be in the surf, but I was still terrified of it. And I went down to surf camp, which is a, I think a five day thing, something like that. Don't may not quote me on that. And there were three coaches, Bonnie and a guy named Marcos and, and Ginny. The first day 
you know, as they break out different people and Janine was working with me and I could hear Bonnie over working with her person and Bonnie's lively and she's a, a minister. So her voice really carries. And here I am all terrified and nervous. And of course, Jenny's very calm and sweet and, you know, she's right there. So, and I, I'd hear Bonnie holler at her, her student and I just like, like, Wah! and so second day I'm with Marcos and I hear Bonnie again. And I'm just like, boy, if I think if, she, if I work with her and she hollers like that, I'm just going to freak out. And it was her birthday the night before the last, the last day, the last night, I should say. And I had brought my ukulele. No, no I brought my mandolin and I sang her a, a birthday song. And so next day she's, she's my coach <laughs> And really nervous, I'll just, and, and she comes up to me and she says, okay, here's what I want you to do. After you get in your kayak and the minute you're in the, the seat, when you're paddling through the surf, I want you to start singing. You have the most beautiful voice I've ever heard. And I want to be able to hear it while you're on the water. So I want you to sing loud and I want you to keep singing and not stop until you're off the water. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> and that was all she said. So I was just like, she knew what I needed. And so I, I, I paddle out and I start singing John Denver's, uh, I Calypso. Or <laughs> and of course I'm singing, I Calypso. Oh dear. There was a big, big wave coming singing to your spirit. This is a really big wave. And I'm singing these things. I'm like, okay, this is not working. This is not working. Okay. Sing in another language. So I, I decide, okay, I'll sing an aria because I'm a trained opera singer. And so I, so I start singing an opera in Italian. And when I'm doing that, I can't sing the Italian and translate it and focus on what's going on with kayaking at the same time. So all of the scary stuff goes right away. It's gone. And I'm just surfing and playing. And it was incredible. And I got back and she just said, once you can turn off that monkey mind by something singing, tapping, whatever, then it takes away that, that part of the brain that's going, I'm afraid. And it just opens it up to, um, you being able, so on, on the actual, uh, three month expedition, if I got to a place that I could start to, if it was really hairy in the beginning, after a while, it became, any, all of the big water was like nothing. <laughs> the fear was gone. <laughs> but in the beginning, I sang. If I got nervous, I sang. And then there were some days when I was just bored and I sang. But, but yeah. Well, Bonnie would certainly be proud. <laughs> well, she was. It was. It was exactly what I needed, and she was just uh, right on with it, and, and absolutely amazing. And I think about her often when I when I when I get nervous, I start singing. And it's just like, thank you, Bonnie. <laughs> 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 all right so and i think that also speaks to your to your be more present um, that you mentioned earlier you said that one of the things that you would do is you know, you wanted to be more present and uh so by really focusing on that particular moment and what you're doing at that moment you're certainly present in that moment yes 
You mentioned wildlife earlier, and uh, I had forgotten to mention that earlier. What kind of wildlife encounters did you have? My favorite was a sea otter. I was in Johnston Strait in and amongst uh, some rocks, rocky area, because I was a kayak and it was really shallow in between the rocks and the shore. I was able to, to go there. As I'm coming up to this one rock, I see a sea otter laying on its back, lying on its back, just kind of hanging out. It wasn't eating or anything. It was just kind of hanging out and it didn't see me. And I got about 10 feet away from it when it finally saw me. But because I was just, I didn't change my pace or my movement, it just looked at me. And in my head, of course, I said, hello, friend. (laughs) And my heart and sent that hello to it. And it seemed to respond in kind in that it because it was we were moving in the same direction and one of the rocks came between us and by the time we got past that rock it was still next to me and still looking at me not doing anything else I was looking at it and then another set of rocks and and it was probably I I did time it I want to say it was 20 minutes that it took me to get through that rocky segment and it wasn't until the last rock that I came past and it didn't, it stopped. It must've found a sea urchin or something that was better than me. But that was probably the, the most, I don't know, warm experience for me with wildlife. I saw so many whales so close up. Um, not one of them knocked my kayak over so that I could hug it, um, which People would say, what happens if you get a, a whale knocks you over? I'm like, I'm hanging on to it. <laughs> That's my <laughs> invitation for a whale hug. I didn't get any of those. And then I hadn't seen doll porpoises before this trip. And I got to see them from a motorboat and how they like to play in the wake, that, how fast they were. They're so fast. Or I guess they're the fastest marine mammal, unless you ask the orcas. I guess the orcas think they're fast. But uh, those those were two memorable bears. I did see a couple of bears and spent the night, maybe one or two nights, not too far away from a, a black bear. <laughs> so one eye open. Didn't uh, I didn't even know it until. I left and I saw it and it was, I was out on a point on one side of a point. And when I left and I went to the other end of the point, which is only really about 20 feet, if you went straight across from where I was through the forest, it was on the other side. (laughs) Probably had been there for quite some time. And did you carry a bear canister or do a bear hang or how did you uh, manage that part? I... Research, that was the one thing I researched the most because it was just something I've never had to deal with. And I went, I went a little on the, I don't know how, how to put this. After, like I say, a fair amount of research, I decided to um, keep my food, any food that wasn't freeze dried or dehydrated and, and sealed and even that stuff in a dry bag. And that dry bag was my pillow. And yes, I carried a bear canister. I also had a little foghorn and I practiced my go away bear voice. 
And I made that decision based on all of the injuries and actual deaths from people trying to hang their bear bag. And I also didn't know if I was going to be able to, if I was going to be at beaches where there'd be something I could hang it on. And ultimately, because the areas that I traveled, at least the wild areas, were not ones that were heavily traveled or there wasn't, there wasn't heavy traffic of people. So there wasn't a chance for the bears there to get used to people. Now, I had read in some places that I had been, I had read some accounts of people having issues with bears, but I was very fortunate. So what's next for you? One of the consequences of taking three months out of the busiest part of my company's season was that we had some unexpected turnover in terms of some of one of my fellow owners opted out during the middle of my trip. And that put the load on one other partner, almost the entire load on this other partner. He did a great job, but it, it took its toll and he was he was like finished. <laughs> that was one of the reasons that I made sure that I did not come back late. Then of course, 2020 happened. Right now I'm focusing on the company recovering. And we did fairly well this year in that regard. And I think if next year it continues along the same trajectory as 2021, that we will be fully recovered by the end of 2022. Once we are fully recovered, whenever that happens, I am going to start planning another trip. This time it may be New Zealand or someplace where I can go when it is not our peak season. <laughs> uh -huh. So it may be Baja. I'd kind of like to, you know, even just do a, I don't know, 15 day Loretta La Paz or something like that. So again, start smaller and then maybe go back and do something bigger, but something in November through March timeframe where it will, my absence will not impact the company negatively. Sounds like a good plan. I wish you the best on uh, choosing whatever that, whatever that destination may no be. No suggestions for me? So, <laughs> um, not, no, I'm, I'm going to leave that to you and to your own imagination. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I've got lots of episodes from people who've paddled the Southern Hemisphere, though, so feel free to, to dig into the catalog and see if something inspires you. There we go. I will do that. You've talked about Columbia River kayaking a few times, so tell us a little bit about Columbia River kayaking. It is a uh, multi-member-owned outfitting company. We do instruction and tours. The majority of the tours that we do are for a program called Road Scholar, formerly called Elder Hostel, where we take retired people out on the lower Columbia River. Um, some of them are beginners. Some of them have some kayaking experience. And we share the cultural, natural history of this area with them. And we have for 24 years. So it's a combination of paddling and cultural and environmental education yes it's it's in it's an educational travel is the catchphrase for for road scholar um, very cool but it, it's just such a rich way to do it what are the types of programs do you run um we do typical classes introduction to kayaking through foundations through um, surf intro to surf multi-day coastal training we also do school groups and we've done corporate 
training or retreat getaway kind of team building things. My, I think my favorite though is really the, the school groups, especially like we have a local upward bound class that comes out now. Kids are amazing and fun and it's just great to see them get out on the water and, and just thrive. <laughs> what is it about those, those groups specifically? The wonder, the curiosity and the newness of it for them. It's a view they've never seen before from a vessel they've never been in before. To see how they see it is joyful. And I mean, Road Scholar is also amazing in that you have people from all over the world, basically, who travel the world. And so they have a rich history as well and bring that to it. And of course, I'm always learning more from them because they're up there with the, the school groups in terms of the questions. <laughs> so most <laughs> of what I, I learn is is basically from questions from them. They get they're really impressed. They're like, oh, how do you know all this? And it's like, because I get asked <laughs> and I find the answers. So, and it's a great combination. It's, I think my favorite part of coaching and guiding is being able to be with someone and enable them to, to figure out how to get from point A to point B, but feel good about it because they know you're there. And then also to be able to ask them questions or ask them to try things that trigger them to really like with my trip is like learning it on my own, learning it saying, okay, I've got to figure out how to do this. I got to figure out how to do this. Necessity made me figure it out. But for somebody to tell me, this is how you do it, I don't learn as well that way. And a lot of people, I'm learning that a lot of people don't. So the, the most effective way that I am helpful with people in learning is to be there while they figure it out to help guide them through that process as they figure it out. And then when they do, it's really cool. <laughs> um, you also mentioned you're a professional musician. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I have I sang before I talked. <laughs> so I've <laughs> always been a singer. That has always been my primary instrument. And later in life, I realized that I wasn't always going to have a guitar player around or a keyboard player or pianist around. I, I actually, like I say, I got um, a, one of my undergrad degrees is in music and vocal performance. So uh, yes, I am a trained opera singer. When I realized though that I wasn't always going to have an accompanist, I picked up the guitar and learned how to play the guitar and, and was self-taught until nine years ago when I finally found someone to work with me because I play left-handed and it's really hard to find people who will actually work with you if you play left-handed. It's just mirroring. I don't, I don't understand the resistance. But so that's when I really started finalizing a lot of my songs. Being able to play the guitar helped me to arrange my songs more fully. And then I released, uh, I've, I have two recordings uh, solo. And then I also have a band called the Skamakaway Swamp Opera. And Skamakaway... <laughs> if you look it up, it's um, that's where Columbia River Kayaking is located. And we're a four-piece group, 
and we are eclectic in terms of our style, but we do bluegrass arrangements of a lot of things that you wouldn't think could be arranged in a bluegrass, bluegrass arrangement. But at any rate, we have two recordings that are available. We perform fairly regularly. Of course, the last couple of years have been different, but we play regionally. I play regionally. I used to tour in the wintertime. I would tour the U.S., with the solo stuff, but as I'm getting older, that's getting harder. So I'm sticking more around the Pacific Northwest. Well, you'll have to give me uh, links that I can add into the show notes so people can learn a little bit more, a little bit more about your music and uh, and hear the Scamapaway Swamp Opera. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So, how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions for you, Kelly? There's only one spot and I've got, you can contact me on it. You can also read about my music, buy my music. You can link through to Columbia River Kayaking and that is KyleenAustin.com. You can also read all my blogs there too from the trip. I will make sure I add that to the show notes as well. And uh, we'll talk offline and uh, collect any other resources. You mentioned you did a lot of research and that may help others who are uh, looking to do a trip of their own. So one final question that I have for you, and it's a question that we ask all of our guests here on the show, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Hands down, I want to hear about Ginny Callahan's solo paddle across the Sea of California that she did in 2020. And first person to do it, and I got to hear about her training part of it, but I would love to hear a whole podcast about her, uh, her trip. You mentioned Bonnie earlier, and uh, Bonnie Perry as, uh, was the person that you'd mentioned. So for those who might have been listening and trying to figure out who we were talking about, Bonnie Perry from episode 40 uh, was Passion Beyond the Paddle. She has also uh, made reference to Ginny being an excellent guest. So uh, between the two of you, we'll have to make sure we can get Ginny on and, and learn more about Ginny's experience in Baja and elsewhere. Thank you for the opportunity today as well. It's been wonderful talking with you about your uh, Inside Passage journey, how it has changed you as well and made a difference in your life. And, uh, and hopefully that can also spread out to others, allow them to be more present and make a difference in their life as well. Well, thank you, John. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I'm picturing Kylene and Baja singing to the surf with Bonnie Perry's great laugh in the background. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Kylene's preparation process, the learnings along the way from a paddling perspective, and what she learned about herself. I've included some of Kylene's references in the show notes at paddlingtheblue.com, so be sure to check that out. You'll find trip planning resources, as well as follow-up information on Columbia River Kayaking and Kylene's music. If you're interested in reading Betty Lohman's story, Bija Boji, I've also got a link to purchase that as well. Our next episode will feature Joachim Larsen sharing the account of his 233 days solo of the entire coast of Norway, 
and as if the full length of the coast wasn't enough, when he reached the end, he turned around and did it in reverse. Don't miss this one. It's going to be a good time. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.